Hi, folks. It's Filmography Club. I'm Jason. And today we're talking about Enemy. Enemy is a 2013 psychological mystery thriller slash journey into the surreal sort of drama starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Melanie Laurent, and Sarah Gadon. The screenplay was written by Javier Guillon and was based on the novel The Double by Jose Saramago. It was, of course, directed by this season's subject, Denis Villeneuve. I'm joined today by media prophet Jason Sean. Jason spent 11 years as the local film critic for Gannett and currently contributes to the Nashville scene and the AV Club. He was the founder of the Nashville Cinema Underground and often hosts the Midnight Movie Series at the Belcourt Theater. A graduate of NYU and Watkins Film School, his criticism and writing have also appeared in Dish Magazine, In Review, The Film Journal, Opposable Thumb Films, and About.com. His art and photography have been exhibited at the St. Mark's Position Gallery and the Barney Building in New York City, the Rule of Thirds Gallery and the Belcourt Gallery in Nashville, and online at ifc.com. If you're listening to this, we assume that you've seen the movie, so we get right into spoiler territory fairly quickly, so just be aware of that. So here it is, my talk with Jason Sean about the 2013 brain fuck of a thriller, Enemy. And I'm joined by Jason Sean. Jason, how are you today? I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm doing well. Been looking forward to this talk. I rewatched Enemy a couple of days ago, a few days ago, and I, this is my second viewing. And I'm glad to see it for a second time because it's one of those movies you kind of have to see it a second time to. I don't know if it makes more sense now, actually, or not. But I one of the things about it that I found the most impressive with the, the this would have been my third viewing is that I still don't have any more of a feel for what it's like symbology is about. I mean, it's it's there's there's been. A, d- a decent amount of scholarship on the film, and uh, Vinov has talked about going back to the Saramago story that it's based on. That it's it's about living in a totalitarian society without any outward signs of that. But um, and you know I get that. Like the the political stuff is very easy to pick up on, but like the spider symbology, I still have I'm no closer to understanding what that is supposed to be. You know I've read articles that say like oh it's well it's about his relationship to women. Or about his relationship to the keeping of secrets, and I'm like, I can see elements of that, but it's it's like it's really a perfect uh, symbolic choice because there's no way to unlock this film, like it's physically impossible, and because of that, you have to really sort of like soak in it and get into its nooks and crannies. It feels Lynchian. This one seems to be an outlier in Villeneuve's work. It's bizarre. It's a mindfuck. I was pretty much convinced until you just said that, that the spider symbology has to do with his relationship with women. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe you're going to talk me out of that, but that's kind of what I had in my head for the second (laughs) viewing. And the ending made way more sense. Those weird cuts to like the gigantic spider, um, just all that stuff. It it felt more natural. But again, this is a tough movie to keep up with because we've got one actor playing two characters, maybe. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, they're impersonating one another. (laughs) <laughs> who are in no way physically differentiated from each other. That's right. Like, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing because it's like, and, and, and Gyllenhaal, who I think is a great actor. Um, he's really like doing the work, like the, the, the differentiations between um, Adam and Anthony are so subtle that unless you're like really looking for them, you can't pick them out. 
And it's literally just from scene to scene where, where their behavior objectives are oriented. It's a wild film. And it, it's um, it, something you said, it is, it is, it is Lynchian, but it, it's also very Cronenbergian. And I feel like, now I haven't seen all of Villeneuve's films, but of, of the ones I've seen, this is the one that feels most defiantly Canadian. Like it's definitely reaching to the, um, to the, to the, the iconography and that sort of like, like sexually heightened, but very polite and on the edge tone that, that Cronenberg's crash defined that, you know, just for, for American viewers, it's like Canada is a very polite place of sexual intrigue, you know, and it's just like, and this film is like, yes, that's where we're taking place. This movie is proudly taking place in Toronto, which is bizarre. You never see a movie that just takes place in Toronto. Okay, Canadian cities got um, are 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 very well known for playing other cities. There was a that what was that terrible Richard Gere Sharon's intersection mm-hmm. that like because it was actually taking place in Vancouver, people were just like, well, that's unheard of. Nobody actually. Right. That's a movie in Vancouver. They just shoot it there and tell people it's something else, which is actually really fitting with the thematics of enemy. When you stop and think about it, you have you have this identifier and then all of a sudden people are just like, well, no, that's something different. Or it's, you know, it's it, it is a city playing itself, which you could say about Adam and Anthony. I can't imagine why, you know, the film takes place in Toronto. I'm fine with that. But the only reason I think it had to, obviously, the filmmaker is French Canadian, mm-hmm. but. And I think this was a joint production between Canada and I think a, a Spanish production company. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a Canada and Spain, and also I mean, there's there's just very healthy um, Canada believes in its arts. Um, True, <laughs> which is, it's it's difficult for us as Americans to process because when everything is so completely private. But like, mm-hmm. there's there's good arts funding in Canada, and um, and also again, you know, even at this point in his career, Vietnam's is. He's becoming an international player and he's like, there's a, a certain degree of civic pride. And there's also a certain degree of, you know, wherever you're paying taxes, you want to put in some work so that that, that that's not something you're going to have to like worry about swooping up and biting you in the ass. I think a big part of it, too. I, I, the only thing I can think of where it had to had to just as far as for story concerns is the uh, the spider symbology. Again, those shots where we're looking up at the the cables for the trolleys mm-hmm. and it's that there's this one shot in particular where i can't remember if it's anthony or adam to tell you the truth but he's looking up i want to say it's adam and it looks like spider webs covering the city yeah that's there, there's a couple of moments like that and i think that that's something that's unique to toronto it's entirely possible and then also it's um at the oh, saramago who wrote the story i mean he was portuguese so he was working so, so I, I haven't read this the story so i don't know the like the, the like, double the visual, yeah, the, the mm-hmm. visual um, specifics of where he's working on, but it's sort of like you know when you're when you're adapting something, you sort of find where it fits into the into where you're going to shoot it. And um, uh, the, the the other thing that you, you were mentioning about, um, not sure which one of them sees the giant spider that's uh, uh, over the city that's based on the Louise Bourgeois sculpture. Well, um, I meant the web. I meant the the, oh, okay, the, the trolley car. But but please go ahead. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've noticed, and and this was just sort of like, and this was oddly enough, I was I was looking up some of the retrospective reviews of it, and uh, Outlaw Vern, who's like a, one of my favorite uh, film critics, uh, he mentioned uh, reading a thing where they were discussing this film, and the opening scene 
in the the spider sex club, that's supposed to be Anthony before we ever even meet him. Right, like, with the not wedding differentiated. Ring. But what it, what it sets up is that the visions of the the women um, conflated with spiders that happen periodically throughout it is associated with Anthony, and then it's after the first meeting is when um, Adam starts it starts infiltrating his subconscious, leading up to the end. Um, now I don't I don't know that that requires like a like a more detail oriented dig through it than I was I was going I was going more for thematic impressions because like I, I've not every film is a puzzle. And, um, you know, so, some films are puzzles and that's how you got to you've got to unlock them. And some films are, are just more sort of like emotional um, etch sketches. <laughs> they're, they're emotional etch sketches. You got to You have to, like, find your way around, but you also have to just shake it occasionally and start over. Do you think that there's a definitive answer about whether Anthony and Adam are two separate guys? Do you think that there are definitive answers at all to be found? No, no, I I don't think there are definitive answers. I feel like there's there's a definitive situation, like something came to a head that forced this like schism between them. Like I, I, you mentioned David Lynch earlier, and the the film that that recurs in my mind is Lost Highway. Same here, which is you know a psychogenic fugue state movie where. Like your problems are going to follow you no matter what body or face you put on or how you change yourself. It's interesting because like that's that's part of a like an archetype that that Lynch does very well, which is like two fragmented lives that are that are that are part of some like uh, misshapen whole. Whereas also the other thing that came to mind is um the uh, the sadly underrated Lindsay Lohan film I know who killed me, where she is actually two people. But society only sees one and they, they're thinking, oh, well, you're having a dissociative fugue state because everybody at least knows the concept of David Lynch movies. And right. it's, it's become a mainstream thing, which is like kind of hysterical. But um, if you've never seen that, I do recommend I Know Who Killed Me, especially in light of this film, because it's uh, I was just like that. They would make a fascinating double feature that very few people would come to uh, and make it all the way through both of them. The, the late great Jim Ridley called it. Um, a methed out take on the double life of Veronique, the Kishlovsky film. And um, he's not wrong. It's so mean and strange. And it's absolutely an auto critique of that, that Lindsay Lohan was doing of her own image at that time. And this is the mid aughts. So this is, this is early on before things got really crazy and terrifying. Yeah. You know, the more I watched this movie, well, I say the more, the second time watching it after Uh having, read some stuff about it, talked to people about it a little bit and, uh, you know, video essays and stuff. I don't know. I think that we do have a definitive answer. Uh, I'm Hmm. curious about how you, and look, what I'm about to tell you here is you've probably read it or heard it before. I'm not about Mm -hmm. to break new ground here. This is all stuff that's been said by other people before. Mm -hmm. I feel like there might be a definitive answer here. Now I know that Villeneuve has played it coy when talking about what the film is about before, Mm-hmm. And he said things that seem to be somewhat contradictory, but the thing that I latched onto and the thing that I heard Jake Gyllenhaal kind of echo is that this movie is about the subconscious. I'm thinking that, all right, Anthony is the real guy, the actor, the married guy with the pregnant wife, the impending birth of his child with her. And just, he just feels encumbered by life. And that 
is what set him off on a separate personality. I think there was a tell when he spoke with his mother. There were a couple of tells, but the one that stands out the most to me was when Adam goes to visit his mother. Isabella Rossellini. Isabella Rossellini. That's right. And when she says, when he tells her, no, I don't like blueberries. And we've already established that Anthony does, in fact, like blueberries when he's talking to his wife about his shake or whatever. And she says, no, of course you do. And then she tells him that he needs to find a a, a real job or something like that and stop Mm -hmm. trying to be a third rate actor. Mm -hmm. That's Anthony. That's the third rate actor. He wasn't there as I'm going to pretend like I'm Anthony and go visit his mom. He was visiting his mother and Mm -hmm. she assigned Anthony's job to Adam. And then the thing with the blueberries makes me think, okay, the real guy is Anthony. The real guy is an actor. Uh, What's her name? Uh, The mistress, Mary. Mary. Yeah. the, The whole thing with the picture, the picture being torn in half that Adam has, and you can see a woman's hand in it. Mm-hmm. But you don't know who the woman is. And then later on, when he's in Anthony's apartment as Anthony, dressed up as Anthony, this is almost like Inception. There's so many layers to identity in this movie. He sees the whole picture, and it's a picture of Claire, his wife, or Anthony's wife. You kind of need a flowchart to keep up with this movie. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things that I found that I find really interesting is like, I can see that. I can absolutely see that. But even though it starts with Anthony at the spider sex club, like that's how we're brought into this story, even though we Mm -hmm. don't realize that there's a differentiation. The thing that really stuck out this time, especially with the films he's made since then, um, is that, you know, we, we start out in what we perceive the life of an academic who's like trying to teach like the youth uh, about political theory and um, the history of dictatorships. Although he doesn't mention the Ceausescu's, which is like, that's the most fascinating dictatorial touch of like the 20th century is that like when the Ceausescu's were in charge of Romania every year, they would have every single typewriter in the country. Someone would have to write out a page of it so that they could trace subversive literature back to the typewriter it was written on, Wow, which is crazy intense. And that's that's one of those things. Any time somebody talks about uh, totalitarian things, it always just sticks in the back of my head. But what what I find really interesting is that by 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 starting out with like establishing this academic character that you know the friend the, the not a friend the colleague at work recommends the film that like leads him into this and it's about the pleasures of genre and the liberation of genre he's like oh I don't watch many movies or TV like he doesn't even have a TV in his apartment right he's just got that he's just got his laptop and then you know he's got this like academic unfulfilling life and then. It's not just that like, oh, he watches this wacky film and that and that like unlocks this part of his life. It's the fact that it unlocks a mystery, you know, and it also unlocks a horror film. And he's finding these new facets of his life, you know, or granted his original life, depending on how you interpret it. Mm-hmm. You know, because like Vienna has this reputation as like being like super serious and, you know, coming from the artsy background. But it's like he's gone into making like grand entertainments with like very um, serrated edges. Um, although, except for Dune, that's a whole other thing. That's, but that's, you know, that's working with an adaptation of like a major work that's got 60 years of history hanging around it and um, grafted onto the edges. But I, I just find like in the, the first third of the film that that the liberation, the liberating chase through mystery and horror and like th- this whole like new world that he's found because he rented this shitty romantic comedy or whatever. Um, and I love that. I love that that one of the tenets of this film is that, that that you can find liberation through genre cinema. 
um, which it, which is you know really refreshing. So and because of that, and also because like you know professionally, I'm a film critic. Like I see that as part of as my serious job. Unlike you know being a cat sitter or like being a DJ. You know, there's all these other things, and like like there's the there's the thing that you do that you use to define yourself when someone says like, oh, well, what do you do? And I, I like the fact that that one of the aspects of this film is like you contain multitudes and you can find other things to define yourself by than what you're just what you're doing to make a living. It's interesting. You know, I hadn't thought it had not occurred to me that Anthony could be the, the prime self because I associate far too much with the the academic work that is liberated by genre. But I, I don't think like Villeneuve likes easy solutions. And I, I don't think that he would make it that quite that unlockable. When I watched it the second time with that in my uh-huh. head, thinking, okay, the spiders represent responsibility, fidelity. We get the scene with the mother and mm-hmm. she kind of shoves what I'm thinking is the truth in his face. Stop trying mm-hmm. to be a third rate actor. And yeah, you do like blueberries, you weirdo. Why are you saying you don't like blueberries? That was kind of forcing him to admit you're not this guy. You're, you're Anthony. You're not Adam. You're Anthony. The very next cut we get is that big, wide Toronto cityscape with the gigantic, monstrous kaiju spider. Mm-hmm. That, in my mind, represented his mom just kind of destroying things, doing what kaiju do. Well, it didn't really destroy it. Just sort of loomed over the city. Yeah. Regardless. It, it, that kind of that kind of spider is way too elegant to be a kaiju. <laughs> then towards the end, when we get the two characters impersonating one another, mm-hmm. that's where it really starts getting confusing. So let me see if I can parse this. We get Adam deciding to go to Anthony's place and he meets up with Anthony's wife, Claire. And Claire realizes that this is not her quote unquote husband. This is the other self. Mm -hmm. She says she throws a couple of sentences at him that seem innocuous unless you're the viewer Mm -hmm. and unless you're Anthony. When she says, uh, did you have a good day at school? That was her way of saying, I know you're not the actor. You're the the professor. Mm -hmm. And then she says, I want you to stay. The next scene we get is Adam in that horrible car crash with the mistress, Mary. Mary. And they're presumably dead. Mm -hmm. And now there's nothing left but... Adam impersonating Anthony, living in Anthony's life. And we think, and again, if you're watching it with this in mind, it all kind of plays out. Again, not to say that this is exactly it, but it does work this way. After he quote unquote dies, then he just sort of inhabits his life. And it looks like we're going to get a what could pass for a happy ending at the end. But then he receives the key to that debauched sex sex club. (laughs) Yeah. There's no good reason why Adam would know what that key is to. The movie never establishes that Adam knows what the key is is for or that the sex club even exists, except for the one, the door guy. The door guy wants him to, you know, let him in or whatever, you know, try to put in a good word for him. So I, I just don't see how Adam could know that. Then at the end, he decides you can see it on his face. And the last scene, it's the, all the acting, everything that they're trying to communicate to you. It's all done with Jake Gyllenhaal's face. He doesn't really say much. He gets a look on his face when he looks at the key and he realizes I'm not changed at all. In fact, I'm just as bad as Anthony was. Mm-hmm. He decides he wants to go to the sex club. He tells his wife that he's going to go out tonight. She doesn't respond. Then he goes, and we all know about the ending. And he looks in the yeah. room and the spider isn't just a gigantic room sized spider, which is horrifying enough, but yeah, it powers. 
it cowers against the wall. And then the last shot we get is Adam's face as Anthony. And he has a look of sort of resignation on his face. Like she knows that I'm no better than Anthony. Well, he has that sigh that yeah. just sort of like, which is not how you would react to a spider of that size. Let me tell you something. That's like, that is still to this day, one of the few times I've actively screamed out loud. I'm, I'm very arachnophobic. So oh, wow. that was an issue. Um, yeah. What's interesting is that going back to like after, after the, the car crash that, that kills Anthony. And um, the thing about it is that it's like, he's, we have the character of Adam who is, who's pretending to be Anthony. And again, he is liberated by the structures of genre because he can like, he can play undercover, like his way out to like try something new is to play undercover. But then the last line that um, Mary says to him before the, the reveal of, of that ending is she's just like, Oh, have you talked to your mother lately? I talked, she called today. There, it's, right. it's something, something about she talked to his mother that day. That sort of like that triggers a certain uh, dissociative thing that's going on. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's, well, and then also what's really interesting is that the, the Saramago story, it's not using the, the spider thing throughout. Um, it ends with the, the character who has sort of reconciled himself into the, this combination of the two lives, getting another call like happens earlier in the film from someone who's just like, I look like you, who are you? So it's it, that it's a cycle and it's happening again. And it could have happened like many times before that, that he just keeps splitting off these lives. And that plays to part of the lecture when he talks about the quote from Hegel. Happening as tragedy and as farce. Yeah, well, well, it was Hegel that said all the world's greatest events happen twice. And I think Karl Marx added the first time is tragedy, the second time a farce. Yeah. And I, I took that to mean, again, because I'm looking for it to fit this narrative. Mm-hmm. I took that to mean the first time was Anthony feeling tied down and bogged down by his his life and his commitments and his responsibility. And it's being expressed through Adam's lectures about creative freedom being stifled and personal liberty being stifled by authoritarianism. And I took the authoritarianism to mean his familial responsibilities. And then at the very end, it happens twice because he finally purges Anthony and only Adam remains. But then with that look on his face, as he looks at the key and him contemplating what he's going to do that night, and he realizes he's just, he's no better. He's going to do the exact same thing. That's the farce. He knows where this is headed and he just does it anyway. Maybe. the, the, well, the thing that's interesting, though, is, is is sort of like as far as purging the character of Anthony, is that what is the deal with the mistress who dies in the car crash? Is she another is she a, a similar construction of the wives? You know, it's two different actresses, two great actresses, uh, Sarah Gaden, because anybody who's, who's done Cronenberg work automatically gets a lifetime pass from me. And uh, Melanie Laurent, because everybody knows her for Inglorious Bastards, but she's also an incredible director herself. But it's like these women are differentiated in a way that the male characters are not. And yet with that car crash, if it is a literal car crash that happened, who was driving and how did he survive? And if it was a metaphorical car crash, did she ever even exist? I mean, we we never really see the, the girlfriend outside of the context of either Anthony or Adam. 
that's but a good I mean, point. Is, and is this getting too deep into the weeds? You know. <laughs> well, that's why we have podcasts to talk about exactly, movies, exactly. so that we can get in those weeds. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really good point. I never really thought about that. She may or, she may have not even been a real person. And it's it's and it's also it is it is typical of the man child things that Anthony and Adam are going through that it just that the the girlfriend can be a psychological accessory. This film is very uh it likes to tease you with things and then surprise uh the uh, and the thing that the, the other thing about it that I find really interesting is that Anthony uh being an actor is seen as somewhat disreputable. I mean like he's he's got like three bit part roles whatever. Um and which is when when Adam calls and is just like I've seen all your films you're great in them. It's just like how can you tell? Like he doesn't, he barely even speaks in these films, but it, but it's like, you know, it's like trying to be an artist, trying to do something, which I'm sure is reflective of uh, conversations that Villanova's had in his own life, because that happens to every artist. But I, one of the things that I love, you know, and for me to love anything about spiders is, but the, the repeated spider symbolism is that spiders are artists and they use their art to kill, to survive. But I mean, that's that's the thing is that like the actual creation of a web, it's not just, you know, to catch food. It is it is a form of art, but it is it is for a purpose that is horrifying and that um, that is very alien to how we view the human need to create art. Right. So I, I that that's one of the things that like that since the very first time is like stuck in the back of my head. It's like, what is this movie saying about the the, the need slash compulsion? to be an artist, but yes, spiders are murder artists. And it's just, and it happens like so often. And it's such an ingrained part of like the, the, the circle of life um, to get all Lion King about it, but it's, it's, it's happening in the corner of your house right now. Um, they're, they're making these little artworks and to, to get close enough and see the intricacy means your own death. That's interesting. Here's something I noticed on the second watch that I didn't catch mm-hmm. the first time. Uh, the spider web at the end when the after the car crash mm-hmm. and the camera pushes in on the freshly demolished car, mm-hmm. one of the windows is smashed in a very spider web like pattern. Oh, yeah. And the yeah. camera sort of pushes in on it. He's trying to communicate something there. I don't yeah. think I'm, I'm bright enough to quite catch it. I always heard that like everyone involved with the film had to sign an NDA not to talk about spiders and what they represent. Yeah. Which is like, that's kind of cool. Cause like usually NDAs are used to hide, you know, horrifying acts of sexual assault and sure. like, like yeah. the, the behind the scenes drama. In this case, it's like, no, no, I just want to keep this thematic aspect of the film completely secret. I, so I that people that. will for years debate what the hell we were talking about in this movie <laughs> on podcasts. Let's talk about the color palette for a second. Mm-hmm. Yellow, or it's more of a sepia, really. Mm-hmm. Directors like to use different color palettes to try to communicate stuff to you, at least on a subliminal level, if, mm-hmm. if you're not uh, getting it right off the bat, if you're not looking at it literally. This color seems to, uh, it invokes madness, insecurity, obsession, mm-hmm. sickness. It's very uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. She wrote the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper. Uh-huh. Where it's like it's 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 it sort of psychologically defines like what those particular shades of that color can do, and it's like it's like yellow drifting into earth tones, right? Some browns like, in I, there for sure. Yeah, I find I find earth tones really 
upsetting is not the word, but it's, it's um, invariably it is, there are signs that something is being said about humanity and what we're doing. And I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know why that is, but there's, there's just something about earth tones. It's, it's, it's sort of like imagination gets scrubbed away and it's like, it's like digging down deep, you know, like the closer we are to the, the dirt we emerged from. Man, I think we've touched on most of it. Uh, the score is fantastic. The score does what most Denis Villeneuve film scores do, which is ramp up the dread. There's a lot of dread in this movie, not quite as much as Prisoners, but <laughs> it's up there. The ending with the Walker Brothers song, that's just like, that's it. you put Scott Walker in your film in any capacity, that's going to be, that's an extra star from me. It's like every every critic has like the, the little unspoken things that like, oh, well, you get extra points for that. All right. Uh, I think we're done here, man. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, Anything you want to plug? Oh, yeah. My writing regularly appears in the Nashville scene uh, in print and online. Um, I also um, uh, pop up occasionally at the AV Club. I take part in IndieWire surveys a couple times a year. And, uh, you know, I'm, I will... I will write for anybody who asks. I will appear at the opening of an envelope. I'm happy to talk about film anywhere with anybody at any time. So, um, you know, it's, it's, if, if, and the, the best knowledge of it is that the only, the only other Jason Sean who gets internet mentions is like a lacrosse coach in the Midwest. So, um, so generally, if you, if you, if you Google it, it's probably going to be like something I wrote. So that's, and that's a good feeling that brings us solace and weird and, tumultuous times the number one searchable jason sean (laughs) wonderful that's a good space to occupy jason (laughs) thank you thank you for having me on the show hey man thank you so much for your time it was a blast excellent all right man take care i will and that's the episode i'd like to remind you to maybe leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts every little bit helps Follow us on Instagram at filmography underscore club underscore podcast and follow today's guest on Twitter at Jay Sean. I'd like to thank my guest, Jason Sean. I'd also like to thank Will Fox, Ross Warner, and Michael Eads. Filmography Club is produced by the always hardworking folks that we own this town in Nashville, Tennessee. This is Filmography Club. I'm Jason Cavanis. Thanks for listening.